You are listening to the Speak Podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Welcome to the Speak Podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Each Speak Talk features three key moments. The moment of truth, the moment of transformation, and the moment of impact. We host pop-up events all over the world, and now we are bringing our talks to your device. Our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight, and now onto this podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Speak Podcast. I am your host for today, George Andriopoulos, the architect and one of the co-leaders here at Speak. Now, today's micro theme is, let's just say, pushing the boundaries a little bit in a few different ways. Our micro theme today is drugs, prescription, and recreational. And we have three incredible talks, as we usually do, but today we have our first example on this podcast of the duality rule. So let's talk about that for a minute before we dive into our talks. Now, the duality rule is something that we implemented in Speak very early on as we conceptualized what these talks would look like and what kind of limitations they have on them. Now, we've always prided ourselves as the brand that does not put a box around our speakers, the brand that does not limit these talks. But of course, we never want something dangerous to go on stage. And so our only real rule besides no visual aids on stage is no selling or advertising from stage. We do, of course, have to approve a talk before it does make it to the stage to make sure that a talk isn't dangerous. But sometimes a talk is a little polarizing. A talk is a little divisive. A talk sparks conversation. And as long as that talk has evidence behind it, if it's an idea and is factual, we will allow it on stage. But it sometimes falls under what we call the duality rule. And what happens with that rule is that the producer of that event, in order to put that talk on stage, when a talk falls under the duality rule, they must find the equal and opposite talk to put on stage next to it. We want to spark conversation. We want to look at different sides of an opinion or different sides of an argument. And so we found that the duality rule was really popular as we focus grouped our channel partners, our speakers, and all the people involved in our platform. This particular grouping of the duality rule, which took place at Speak Health back in October of 2023 at the Bethel Christian Center in Massapequa, New York, was such an interesting pairing. Now, these talks aren't necessarily polar opposites, but they are definitely opposite ends of the spectrum. We'd love for you to hit us up on social media at speak event on most platforms at speak underscore event on X or Twitter. Let us know what you think of this use of the duality rule and talk to us about these talks. Of course, you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch these talks. The link for the talks is in the show notes right now. So hit up those talks, leave comments on there, show us some love on there, and let's 
dive into the talks right now. Our first talk comes from published speaker Brooke Seam from Speak Health, which took place on October 18th, 2023 on Long Island, New York, and Massapequa. Brooke Seam explores the unintended long-term effects of young adulthood spent on psychiatric drugs while asking us to reframe our conception of depression through the lens of hope and love. Brooke's talk was included in the first ever use of Speak's duality rule on the Speak Health stage, and we are so excited for you to hear it. Without any further ado, here's Brooke Seam with This Talk May Cause Side Effects. When I was 30 years old, I calculated the day of my own death. I came up with this number by taking a dozen online life expectancy tests, averaging the results, and then figuring in leap years. Then I scheduled the whole thing on my Google Calendar at 12 p.m. on November 6, 2069, a Wednesday. It was a long time to wait to die. So I passed the time by calculating other things. For example, I calculated that I could get exactly 42 three millimeter slices out of one five inch cucumber. And that I had walked my dog 8,942 times. And that over the course of my life, I'd taken 10,920 antidepressants. My father died when I was 15. I was taken to a child psychiatrist who diagnosed me with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. He gave me a prescription for Effexor XR and Wellbutrin XL two drugs that to this day are still not approved for use in children or teens by the FDA. But he said that my depression was genetic. It was predisposed, a chemical imbalance. He said, take these pills, come back in six months. We'll find a way to manage you. I didn't bother questioning this narrative. I mean, why would I? I was 15. I was taught to listen to doctors and respect institutions. And when a doctor tells you, you have diabetes, you don't question the need for insulin. Well, a doctor told me I had depression, so I didn't question the need for antidepressants. But at five foot three and 125 pounds with air resistance slowing my rate of fall by 0.24 meters per second squared, I calculated that it would take exactly 5.58 seconds for me to fall from my 30-story Manhattan window to the cement below. And on that day, Compared to the 19,673 days I knew I had left to live, 5.58 seconds felt like freedom. It did dawn on me that this was an odd exercise for someone whose antidepressants were working as advertised. So I dove into the literature. And it turns out we do not have a single randomized placebo-controlled trial that measures the long-term efficacy or effects of antidepressants. What we do have are typically four to 12 week trials conducted by pharmaceutical companies, which means that the business that profits from the sale of the drug is the same business that determines how the data is used, where the data is published, and which trial results are published, which means that neither the patient, the prescriber, nor even the FDA gets the full story. Furthermore, unlike measuring diabetes, there's not a test to measure someone's level of depression. The same goes for ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar, and all the rest. There's not a single practical biomarker, scan, or blood test that can measure or identify mental illness. So how could my doctor have even known I had a chemical imbalance if there wasn't a test for it? 
this all made me deeply uncomfortable because I hadn't had a single unmedicated moment in my entire adult life. I was a child when these drugs were first prescribed. The decision was made for me. And that decision affected every aspect of my life, from creativity to empathy, even sexual and reproductive health. And here I was learning that there wasn't even evidence to support it. So I talked to my doctor, like the commercials told me to do. And she said that because I was on the lowest dose of effects around the market, 37.5 milligrams, if I wanted to stop taking it, I was going to have to stop taking it cold turkey. Now, let me be clear. This was incredibly irresponsible advice. Effexor is notoriously difficult to get off of because it has a very short half-life and a steep CERT occupancy, which is the measure of the percentage of a serotonin transporter that is blocked by an antidepressant at a given dose. But I didn't know any of that at the time. Why should I have known? I was just the patient. But without Effexor XR in my system, my mind began to fill with bloody homicidal visions. I developed an intolerable sensitivity to light and sound and tore the clothes off my back when shirts I'd worn for years became unbearably itchy. I even bent a metal ironing board in half out of rage. And this went on for a year. But at the same time, I was also having these little moments of lightness and joy and wonder that I hadn't experienced in 15 years. Even the way I saw color changed, it was like the saturation slider was turned up on my whole world and I was desperate to hold on to that color. I needed it. I needed color like I needed air. And so I didn't tell my psychiatrist what was happening to me. I had a deep intuition that if I told her what I was experiencing, she would put me on an involuntary psychiatric hold. This happens all the time. I know because today my work and my book focus on safety prescribing education. So in addition to talking to parents and corporations, I speak to doctors and residents about psychiatric drug withdrawal because infuriatingly, this is not taught in medical school. Without withdrawal informed doctors, Patients run the risk of being misdiagnosed with everything from schizophrenia to bipolar to borderline personality disorder. If that happens, they can be hospitalized, often against their will, where they're forced onto powerful antipsychotics and sedatives, all because they were having a withdrawal reaction to a low dose of a common antidepressant they were told was safe. It has now been seven years since my last antidepressant, and the suicidal thoughts have evaporated when I got the drugs out of my system, which leads me to wonder if my antidepressants were actually contributing to my depression. And perhaps there's an argument to be made that for a small and specific subset of people, antidepressants could be of short to medium-term aid. But in the 35 years since that Prozac has been on the market, it doesn't take a PhD to look around and come to the conclusion that what we're doing is not working very well. I think that's because when it comes down to it, these drugs are no match for what we all really need, which is love. The death of my father was not about the sudden absence of a person. It was about the sudden absence of love. That's where I got lost, and that's why the depression appeared. And I don't think this is an isolated incident, because when I talk to other people, and I asked them to tell me their story. 
without using the word depression, it boils down to a lack of, cessation of, or betrayal of love every time. So I think that my depression was trying to alert me to the magnitude of love I was going to need to learn to create for myself in order to make up for the depth of the loss. And that was going to take time, real time. The second that process was medicalized was the second that opportunity was taken from me. But today, the depression, the anxiety are gone thanks to years of deep emotional work. And thank goodness, because as of today, I have 16,822 days left to live. Maybe, hopefully, because I want them all. I want all the futures I never thought I'd have. Because today, compared to 5.58 seconds, 16,822 days feels like freedom. Thank you. That was Brooke Seam with This Talk May Cause Side Effects. Brooke came to us from The Big Talk, one of our channel partners, and we are so thankful to them for sending Brooke over to us. Now, the speakers who take part in the duality rule today, which is Brooke Seam and Dr. Jonathan Edwards, were actually notified during our first virtual rehearsal that they were falling under the duality rule. And so it was a little bit of a surprise to them, which sparked an interesting conversation during that rehearsal and ongoing conversations since then. I wanna dive in now after we thank Brooke. Again, thank you, Brooke, for this incredible talk and for taking our stage. I wanna dive into our second talk now, the second talk in the duality rule, which is Dr. Jonathan Edwards. So Dr. Jonathan's talk, which is entitled How a Little Known Drug Stops Suicide, which took, I guess, a different perspective from the opposite end of the spectrum and not necessarily a polar opposite, like I said, but definitely on the opposite end of the spectrum. Dr. Jonathan Edwards is an anesthesiologist, and so he is a medical practitioner that is very well versed in certain drugs. So. In his speak talk, medical doctor and anesthesiologist Dr. Jonathan Edwards discusses the epidemic of depression and suicide when he was educated on the treatment of suicidal tendencies with a little known for this use drug called ketamine. He realized that the staggering number behind suicide could be dramatically lowered if the use of ketamine for this clinical indication became more widespread. Jonathan's talk was included again in our first ever use of the duality rule on the Speak Health stage. So without further ado, here's Dr. Jonathan Edwards with How a Little Known Drug Stops Suicide. Every suicide ends one life, but it rolls a grenade into the lives of many others. I saw this firsthand when I was seven years old. My grandfather sat on a couch, placed a shotgun to his chest, pulled the trigger, and made his last worldly decision. A short while later, I remember being in that room, looking at that couch, watching my parents, aunts, and uncles, and especially my grandmother crying and wailing like I'd never seen before. I was just trying to make sense of it all. Suicide, it's a 
captivating, powerful, and an uncomfortable word. Even though somebody in the US dies by suicide every 10 minutes, yet hardly anybody talks about it, unless you bring it up. And then everybody seems to have a story. Depression and loneliness are the main causes of suicide. And in the US each year, nine million men, women, and children will be diagnosed with some form of depression. And anybody who's ever been depressed knows what it's like. You can't pull the covers off. You, it's like walking around in fog and lead boots. Of that nine million, about one, about one million will go on to attempt suicide. And in the US in 2022, 50,000 people died by suicide. That's the most ever since World War II. Yet the media hardly ever talks about it. Why? I mean, isn't 50,000 people a big enough number to raise some level of concern? Apparently not. I mean, that's, imagine, it's like a 737, fully loaded, crashing to the earth like a lawn dart, every day, all souls lost. And it doesn't get much better. I mean, in 2022, there was also, we also lost more than 100,000 people to, from overdose deaths. And did you know that more police officers and firefighters die by suicide than in the line of duty, or that suicide's now the third leading cause of death in our young working class adults. And most people don't think about a young child taking their life. But where I used to live in Las Vegas, 18 school-aged children did so in 2020, the youngest being seven years old. Nobody can make sense of that. The mental health crisis has always been upon us. The pandemic just made it worse. But there is some good news, and you can make a difference, and it might just be as simple as starting a conversation. My journey into all this began when I was in medical school. I was always fascinated with mental health and suicide. During my medical career, I've been fortunate to work with notable figures like Gavin DeBecker. He's the author of The Gift of Fear. You might have heard of him. And he painfully lost his mother to suicide at 16 years old. And one day, he asked me, he said, Jonathan, what do you know about this drug called ketamine? I said, well, I'm, I'm a board-certified anesthesiologist, and I happen to know a lot about it. Um, and I answered, well, it's an old drug. It's used every day in the hospitals especially in pediatrics, for its safety, and it's on the WHO essential list of medications. And Gavin replied, Jonathan, I'm glad you answered my question that way, but I just want to tell you, I was prepared if you had answered my question in another, the other way. A little taken back, 
It's important to understand why Gavin was ready to debate if I answered the question the other way. And it's because when most people think about the drug ketamine, it's, it's either a horse tranquilizer or they think of it as a, as a party drug. And most healthcare professionals only think of ketamine as an anesthetic and not something that can treat depression and stop suicide. When I answered Gavin's question, it was that it could stop suicide. And so then we wrote the revolutionary ketamine. What makes it revolutionary? Well, the fact that ketamine can stop suicidal ideations in its tracks. Dr. Thomas Insel, he's an, an author and the former director of the National Institutes of Mental Health. He once called ketamine the, the most important discovery in 50 years. Peer-reviewed research shows that even one infusion of ketamine can rapidly relieve suicidal ideations. Outpatient psychiatry clinics are using ketamine now, and in some studies it shows up to 70% relief in suicidal ideations. And when paired with psychotherapy, the results for ketamine are staggering. We've never seen results like this until now. And we've saved the lives of numerous veterans using ketamine. And let's remember, we're, still we're, we're now losing 40 veterans a day to suicide. You know, here are some stories whose lives were transformed using ketamine. In New York Times, in 2010, they reported, Dennis Hartman, a businessman from Seattle, quote, I look at the cost of not using ketamine. For me, it was certain death, end quote. Dennis had been treated for a lifetime of treatment-resistant depression, and he even had a suicide date picked out before he entered a National Institutes of Health ketamine trial. He received the ketamine, and his, his depression was relieved, and now he receives ketamine as needed. Another story from a Florida clinic is, is called Olive's story. Olive is a young girl with a lifetime depression of, de of depression, PTSD, social anxiety, and multiple suicide attempts. And at 26 years old, she decided the only way forward to get over her pain was a compassionate euthanasia in the Netherlands. And, and let's highlight that suicidal people who are suicidal desperately want to live. They just see no other way around their pain. So the day she was to leave, a friend talked her into trying ketamine. So she went to the clinic, received the infusions during the week, and she never took the flight. I treated a young man, 17 years old, suicidal ideations, depression, and social anxiety. And after the first treatment, the suicidal ideations got much better. After the second infusion, things were looking much better. He, his anxiety went down, depression went down, and by the third infusion, he, you could see he, he was looking more to his future, and by an act of will, he could 
he could control those obsess those the obsessional thinking that had led him to this dark place. And he eventually actually got off of his antidepressants. The theme of tonight is that mental health is more than just the absence of a mental disorder or symptoms. And this is important because pharmaceutical companies would just like to pack ketamine into a pill and then sell it. But I can tell you that this is unlikely. And that's because ketamine treats more than just the biological disorder. It treats the root cause. The experience involves the mind, body, and spirit, dissolves the ego and time, and taps into the human psyche. Ketamine with therapy helps patients process complex emotions and traumas and gives them hope that things can change. One of my patients who was older and after he received a ketamine treatment told me once that after the treatment, he was able to see his adult self through his parents' eyes and that he was not a bad person. He should not be ashamed. He spoke of words of acceptance and that a sense of being enough and that everything was going to be okay. I learned young that suicide is a tragedy filled with plenty of drama and pain. And since my grandfather, I've had family, friends, and even professors die by suicide. And I think if I could go back and change anything and maybe change the outcome, would I consider ketamine? That answer is a resounding yes. But understand, ketamine is not a panacea. It's just part of the problem, part of the solution. Suicide is very complex. But ketamine just might be the lifeline that your loved one or yourself needs. And it might just be revolutionary. Thank you. That was Dr. Jonathan Edwards with How a Little Known Drug Stops Suicide. Again, you can see from the dichotomy of these two talks that they definitely take place in two opposite ends of the spectrum, although not polar opposites themselves. But I want to hear what you have to say. So again, hit us up on social media. Talk to us about the duality rule, what you think of these two talks and how we can include these in future events. Thank you, Jonathan, for this incredible talk and for taking our stage. And again, thank you, Brooke, for both of you for being part of this first use of the duality rule. Let's close it out today with a more humorous talk. We're going to go a little bit lighter, even though we are moving from the prescription drug side of this micro theme to the recreational side. Now, this speak talk, which was simultaneously humorous and eye-opening, had comedian and speaker Mike Ateo recount his life's journey, starting with being a victim of a drunk driving accident when he was 18 months old through drug abuse and contracting HIV, coming full circle to a point in his life where laughter had helped to heal him in more ways than one. Without any further ado, 
Here's Mike Cateo with Handicaps, HIV, and Humor. Hi, everybody. My name's Mike. Uh, I come from a funny family, a very funny family. And thank God, because if I didn't have humor in my life, I'd probably be dead. You see, when I was 18 months old, I was in a pretty bad drunk driving accident. Um, I know I probably shouldn't have been drinking. <laughs> Who gives a toddler Kahlua and breast milk? I don't know. But it tastes great. You got to try it, sir. I know you like it. Anyway, I, um, I, it was an accident where we were going over the Bayonne Bridge, and a car came hitting us head on. And I, this is kind of family legend. I think I went through the window, but nobody knows because everybody passed out after the accident. I died, and I was revived on the scene. And then they brought me to the hospital, and I died again. And then I went into a coma for about two weeks. And um, that was really hard because they didn't expect me to live. And so my mother was 23 years old at the time. And she, she was young. She didn't, I can't imagine being a 23-year-old with a child in a coma, not knowing if they're going to live or die. So, but, so I ended up going home. And thank God I did, because my family raised me with humor. They raised me to be a fighter. And they raised me to attest to the adage, if you fall down, get back up. Um, and that's what I did my whole life. And I realized everybody wants to feel sorry for the disabled kid. When I was seven years old, I realized that if I made people laugh, they wouldn't feel sorry for me. So laughter became my, my coping mechanism and my strategy to get people comfortable around me. And it was a great strategy because it allowed me to move in and out of social groups very easily. And it allowed me to be comfortable around people. And then as I was growing up, I thought, you know what? I like this funny business. Let me try stand-up. So I was, I, was, um, I was 19 years old. In 1995, if you're good with math, I'm 47. If you're not good with math, I'm 82. Um, so I, in 1995, I tried stand-up for the first time. And, I blew the light, which means I talked way too long, kind of like now. And so I went on and on. And then they, they let me know I needed to get off stage, and I did. And I got the bug. And I loved performing from that moment on. But I didn't do it like a career until I was about 25 years old. You see, what happened when I was 25 was um, I went through a really bad breakup, and I didn't know how to handle it. Um, I was dating this guy at the time, and we were only dating five months, but it was my first adult love, and you know how bad that is, right? When, you, when someone breaks your heart, you want to just crawl. I went from never doing drugs to, to snorting cocaine and smoking crack within six months. 
And I gotta tell you guys, I love crack. Oh my God. I'd be smoking crack right now if I didn't think I'd die of a heart attack. Like, it's some good stuff. I, if you haven't tried it, if you haven't tried it, do it. No, I'm not saying you should try crack, but if you do, three times, that's how you know you're addicted. Um, so I, I did a lot of crack. I uh, had a lot of promiscuous sex. And in April of 2002, at 25 years old, I found out I had HIV, right? It's kind of what I was expecting. But the interesting thing was when I got tested, I went in and I sat down and my counselor opened the report and she goes, you're negative. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then I looked down at the test. You guys, she showed me the wrong test. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I have a counselor, I want them to be accurate. So there I am, um, 25 years old. I have HIV now. And I did what I always did in moments of crisis. I started making jokes left and right. I called up one of my best friends and I'm like, well, I tested positive. I guess it's time to make a cake with a plus and we'll eat it. It'll be great. So um, that was my weak little attempt at humor back then. And uh, I met up with my friend that night and we went, we, she met me in Staten Island because that's where I'm from. <laughs> Is it weird that I feel dirtier telling you I'm from Staten Island <laughs> than that I have HIV? Is that, it's a dump, literally. Uh, so, thank you, sir. Um, so I, uh, I, we talked all night long and we, we did what we always do when things are hard. We made fun of it. We had laughs. And I, it was particularly ironic to me that I found out I had HIV because I was a social worker in an HIV clinic. So, yeah, wow is right, lady. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear it in the audience, but some lady just goes, wow, like you fucked up, kid. <laughs> so so I, uh, I was a, I was a HIV counselor in Bellevue Hospital. And that was, that was in itself impressive because I saw this day in and day out, and yet it didn't stop me from becoming HIV positive. Now, what it did do to me is, this is weird. Having HIV, contracting HIV, made me realize what I was doing with my life did not make me happy. Being a social worker did not make me happy. Helping people with their problems, I could care less. <laughs> I mean, seriously, go tell someone else. So I... I ended up quitting my job. I ended up moving back into my parents' house. I ended up like not having a lot of money, but I, you know, 
living at my parents' house and not working, I was able to save all of my money for drugs. So that helped. Um, I kept on using drugs until uh, 2000, November or December 2003. And then I started the journey of stopping. And that was a journey because it takes a while. Addiction is one of those things where you'll stop for a while, you'll feel good, and hopefully you don't go back. But every once in a while, you'll backslide. And I backslid a few times. And that's OK, because each time, it taught me something different. Like the last time I backslid, it taught me that um, you could really mess up your memory from drugs. I don't know if you know that. Spoiler alert. But uh, it's, it's really HIV was the one thing that I could actually say saved my life. I, after I left my job at Bellevue, I ended up turning my full attention to stand-up comedy. I start, in 2002, I started pursuing stand-up like it was a career, going to open mics like it was my job. And within two years, I had enough material to headline on the road, which means 45 minutes an hour of material. So all I did, every time I wanted to smoke some crack, I wrote a joke. That's a good strategy in life. If you ever want to do something negative, do something opposite. Write a joke. Go for a walk. Get on the treadmill. Exercise. That's what my mother used to tell me. Um, so stand-up really started to change my life. I learned how to be confident again. I learned how to tell a joke. and I. I learned how to take care of myself because I was doing something I cared about. Um, Stand-up is one of those things that goes along with laughter and can really make a difference in people's lives. What it taught me was I can, I can learn how to craft a joke and say it with compassion just as well as I listen to a person tell me their problems and respond compassionately. And it's a lot more fun telling it in a joke. I got to be honest. <laughs> I love that laugh, by the way. It's very impressive. <laughs> so I ended up like stopping social work for a time and going on the road, making my dreams work. I went, I did a lot of, I, I joined this tour called the Short Bus Comedy Tour, which I love you, lady, which is a tour of comedians who are disabled. And we were on the Opie and Anthony show. And on the Opie and Anthony show, I got two of the biggest compliments from my life from Patrice O'Neill and Ralphie May. So I found my target audience, dead fat guys. <laughs> they love me. So stand-up has really been the thing that has changed my life. And laughter is at the heart of it. I, you know, 
I, like I said, I come from a very funny family. I once, went, I once went bungee jumping. And this is how I can tell you I come from a very funny family. I told my mother I went bungee jumping. She looked at me and she goes, now why would you do that? You're already living on borrowed time. <laughs> that is humor, my friends. That is humor. I, I find that I love helping people. And if I can do it through laughter, it feels like I'm on top of the world. Thank you so much. That was Mike Cateo with Handicaps, HIV, and Humor from Speak Laughter, which took place in August of 2023 at the studio at our headquarters. Now, we do take a humorous spin on this, even though this is a super serious subject, and Mike was just incredible in recounting this story in a way that really impacted people while making light of the situation that he had been in. So thank you, Mike, for this incredible talk and for taking our stage at Speak Laughter. That does it for this episode of the Speak Podcast. Join us next week and every single week as we bring you three more talks and join us for a bonus episode, which comes out today, which is another live recording of the Speak Podcast that took place at Speak Neurodiversity, which was recorded on November 15th, 2023. That's going to be episode 22, which dropped at the same time. So make sure to hop on over to that episode. Show us some love on the socials. Tell us how you feel. Follow these speakers. Subscribe to our channels. We'll see you next time, guys. Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andreas Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore event on Twitter and at Speak event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, speakevent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and Speak at Work opportunities. And follow all the great podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.